Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. All right, if you'll tell the person you're talking to, Habakkuk chapter 2, Habakkuk chapter 2. Uh, I almost said Ephesians, we jumped in my mind. Habakkuk chapter 2, Habakkuk chapter 2, it's in the Minor Prophets. Habakkuk, Habakkuk, I don't know how you pronounce it. My mom was teaching me the books of the Bible, and she always had trouble with Habakkuk. So she said, uh, just remember, have a cookie, and then you'll be pretty close. So have a cookie is how I started to remember that. All right. Well, today I feel like uh, we're being led by the Lord to something that's just for today. And probably you've noticed something different about our service. And um, I wanted to mention that many years ago, um, I had this theory about how the Spirit moved, and and I thought that exciting and intimate songs, along with exciting preaching, um, was the key to seeing lives changed. And uh, I don't doubt that it plays into that. Uh, so some songs I thought shouldn't be sung because they weren't dynamic enough or they weren't personal enough, and especially I had a bias against the hymns because I felt like that was old-fashioned. That's not where people were. Uh, I've changed my mind, so don't be offended with me on that. Um, and that some topics or sermons shouldn't be preached because they weren't what people liked. And so... Um, I thought that if you did those things right, then that would produce growth. And what um, I think has been found out, not by me personally, although I think I have some handle on it, but by a lot of people is that exciting services don't necessarily produce true disciples. Okay, so there has to be something more to it. The commitment needs to go deeper than just the right songs and the right messages there needs to be God at work. There needs to be a heart after things. And and so I don't have all the answers, but I do think that um, there are some important things here. And I think I was relying too much upon technique and skill to produce disciples and not upon the heart of the worshiper. And because I've been there when the technical songs were sung to perfection and this there was no sense of God's presence. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Like all the technical ability in the world doesn't necessarily create God's presence. Now, they're not opposed to one another. It's just that we can't seek one without the other. We need both. You understand what I mean? I think that the true worshiper, the true worship leader, the true preacher, we ought to ask for, plead, if you don't mind me using that word, for God's presence to come, but we also need to do our diligence to be the best we can be with our skill. You understand? So it's not one or the other, it's both. It's both. And so God wants us to give with excellence the the talents that he's given to us. And I was just reading Augustine this week, and he was, he was uh, praying, Lord, um, give me 
something with which I can return to you in worship. That was the gist of what his prayer was. And he recognized something like, you know when your your kids are too little to have their own jobs and they want to buy you something? You have to give them the money to do that. Are you with me? But you know all the while that it's your money, but you're not pleased by the fact that they spent money on it. You're pleased by the fact that they took the gift that you gave and they used their own creativity and they gave it back to you. You see what I'm saying? And so when God gives us his gifts, the talents that we have, the breath in our lungs, um, the life that we're given to live, the life that has been redeemed by Jesus, we take that and we give that back to him in response. And this is worship. So um, sometimes we don't respond to God the way that we would. We had a period of time uh, here when we first came and we didn't have a lot of we didn't have a lot of uh, worship talent in the church. And uh, and so um, we did have some piano players. Renita was playing the piano. She was learning and, and getting better all the time. And we relied upon her a lot. But for a while there, the way that we did worship, are you ready for this? We played old, like, Hosanna worship tracks, and then we sang along with them. And sometimes after the song was done playing, we'd say, let's play it again. And they'd play it again from the beginning, and then we would sing that song. And that taught me something about worship. Worship is not what's necessarily done up here. It's how we're responding to the presence of God. And so I was challenged in that, and it brought me a new perspective. And the reason that sometimes we don't get into the worship when we should get into it is that we're so passive about things. We just want to be led along. We want somebody else to take us down that road. And and we don't want to go after God with all of our heart the way that we should. We're passive about it. Like, we come to church and we're very passive, letting the environment make us rather than us making the environment. You understand what I mean by that? Like we've become consumers, even in areas of worship. The latest worship album, we got to go get that, or we don't go get that anymore. Those are the old days. Now we just play it from our phone or whatever. But we, we're after that kind of thing, and we want to let the environment make us rather than us making the environment. And uh, people often come to church saying to the worship leader, move me. I want to be moved by you. Move me. I'm not feeling it today, but if you can play the right song, maybe you can get me to move. Maybe you can get something to happen within me. And, and that's passive. Okay, and to the pastor, let's see what you're serving today. And we'll tell you if it's good or not. Right? And so we can take that kind of approach. And actually... There's a test to, to find out if you're a worshiper, what kind of worshiper you are. Here's the test. Can you worship if no one else around you is? That's a test, okay? Here's, a, here's question number two. Is Can you worship when you don't care for the song? Okay, that's a good test. Like, not everybody likes every song exactly the same. And this is one of the interesting things about tastes. We all come together and we have different tastes. And some people like some kinds of songs on this particular extreme and others like other kinds of songs on this extreme. And if we allow it to, that can divide us. And we can say it's not true worship unless we sing my song. Okay? And so we get that kind of approach to think, can you worship when you don't care for the song. I'm not talking about it being doctrinally inaccurate or there being something wrong with it. I'm I'm talking about the song has passed muster in regards to its theology and its intention, but we just don't like it. Can we worship even then? 
And let, let me ask you this last question. Can you worship without a song? Because that's when you're a true worshiper. If you can worship even when there is no song, that your whole life is worship. I'm getting ahead of myself on this. But <clears throat> that's the call is that music is an important part of what we do in worship, but it's not all of worship. There's more to worship than what we sing. And I'm grateful for the help of great and moving worship songs. I love that. Um, I miss that even today. Um, Folks, I've been stressing out about this message for three or four weeks now, but I felt like God wanted us to do this because I I love that worship portion. And and in addition, I thought people are going to be mad at me if we we don't worship. I mean, that bothered me. They're going to be mad if we don't sing these songs. But, you know, I found justification in Scripture that it's not all singing that we do in worship. In fact, there have been times in history when people haven't sung songs within the church. And there are places today where if um, they sing, it puts them in danger of being captured by authorities for illegal worship. And so they can't sing. They come to church. They may say a creed quietly. They may sing a song quietly, one. But for the most part, they can't do that because it would alert everybody around them to what they're doing. And so they have to be the church. Imagine this. Without the songs, we are, we're spoiled. We don't have to live under that. We, we can come and we can sing as loud as we want to, and yet we don't often. And that's another, that's another topic for another day. But. So I'm grateful for the help of good worship songs. And we have good worship leaders. They're devoted to their craft, and they work hard to make it happen every week. And there's no shame in being helped in worship by singing together. I think it's one of the excuse me, one of the benefits of worshiping. But it occurred to me that if we love the truth enough to live a life of worship, then couldn't we do that without a song? And if we did that even without a song, how much greater would our song be to him? So these are the thoughts that I had as I was preparing. If you're a guest here today, this is not the typical service, and we would love for you to come back next week for something more normal. Stay here for this one, but come back next week and see what more normal looks like. Uh, We haven't had any music, and this isn't an experiment. This is what we're doing today uh, as part of the message. I don't like it, but we did this in order to help us to say something that I wanted to say for a long time, and I believe this is where the Spirit is leading us. So let's talk about worship, all right? That was the introduction. Let's go to the next slide. Worship is greater than our song. That's point number one. Worship is greater than our song. And you can see this throughout all of Scripture. And let me just take you through some things. Just because we didn't sing doesn't mean that we didn't worship. Hopefully you caught those clues that we were throwing out, that, that there was worship that was happening as we took communion, as we read the Scriptures and responsive reading together, as we fellowship together, as we gave of our offering. Those are all worship. That's part of our worship. It's a response to who God is and what He is like. Okay, so music itself is not worship. Music itself is not worship. It's a conduit for worship, and there are many others. You know, words have a way of shifting around, don't they? Like, they get tricky. That, that words, if if you uh, use them in a particular way over and over again, they can begin to shift meaning. I don't know if you know this, but in the King James Bible, the word prevent does not mean to stand in the way of. It means to precede. And so in the in 1611, 
when they used the word prevent, it meant to go before. And over time, that word has shifted meaning. So if you're reading prevent, when you're reading your King James Bible in the way that we think about it, then you probably misunderstand what that scripture is talking about. It's talking about going ahead of. And there are other words that are an example of that. Nice used to not be such a nice word. Nice used to mean somebody who was simple. You understand what I mean? And so if you called somebody nice, it wasn't a compliment. But it doesn't mean that anymore. It means something much nicer than that. And so they have ways of shifting meaning. And worship's one of those words. I thought it was interesting. I looked at, I've got Noah Webster's um, dictionary of, of American English. And then you can compare that with different ones like Collins. And now there's Merriam-Webster and there's uh, Oxford English Dictionary. You can look at different definitions. I'm kind of a word nerd. And so I was looking this up because I wanted to know what does worship what does it mean? And I, I know what it means, but just as a refresher, do you know worship comes from an old English word, worth-ship? Okay, we somehow dropped out the T-H, and now we've just made another word. But worth-ship was originally applied to God, that he had worth-ship in and of himself. Okay, so here's Noah Webster's first definition. It's excellence in character, dignity, and worth or maybe just to summarize that, it's to have a state of worth. Who has the state of worth? It's God. God has a state of worth. He exists in a state of worthiness for all of our worship. Okay. So first of all, it was a characteristic. Already by Noah Webster's times, you start hearing that there is a shift that's taking place in the meaning of the word worth, worship, where now it's moved away from describing what God is like to something more subjective to the individual who is observing God. And so uh, the Oxford English Dictionary defines it this way. Its first definition is the feeling or the expression, expression of reverence and adoration for God. Okay? Notice the shift that's taken place here. This is, this is more important than it would seem. You see, what's happened is that a word has changed its meaning over time from a focus upon God to a focus upon how we feel about him. You understand the difference there? One of the reasons that oftentimes I think people have a hard time worshiping is that they don't stand in their heart in reverent awe of God's majesty. Something of his majesty has been lost. And so why get up in the morning? Why come on Sunday when it's snowing if God's not really worthy of it? It's all about how we feel. And so it has changed how people have viewed worship. And so that change is important. The shift explains why some people only praise when they feel like it, because it's a feeling or a sense of adoration towards a God. Well, that's not what biblical worship is about. Biblical worship reflects upon the nature of God and understands that he is worthy of all that we can give, including our song. Okay, so it goes even beyond that, and I'll, I'll deal with some scriptures in just a moment. In the Old Testament, uh, one of the ways that they worshipped, and, and let me back up here and say that a good definition of worship is that it offers ourselves completely to God in response to his nature, his works, and his word. His nature, who he is, his works, what he's done, and his word, what he said. Okay? When we worship, we're responding to that. We never act first because God was before us. He always acted in our best interest before we did his. Would you agree? Like while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Okay, that's God acting in advance before we were ever responding to Him. Okay, and then uh, we have narrowed this definition of worship to singing. And it first has the meaning of a response to God's worth. In the Old Testament, there were sacrifices that were offered. And do you know that the sacrifice that they offered were not just sacrifices for sin? Did you know that? They had other sacrifices that they offered. They, they brought their spotless lamb before the Lord. And they offered that to God. And in so doing, they were expressing God's worth. The animal... You, you understand this animal they were offering. Think about all the categories this fit. This was a person's food. This was their wealth and their status because they counted how many in an agri- agricultural culture you established worth based upon how much livestock you had. Are you with me? Okay, so when you're talking about your, your wealth, you're thinking about it in terms of how many animals do I have and how many good animals do I have? And that not only produces or shows your wealth, but it shows your status. And not only does it do that, but that's what you eat. And so when a person brought their animal to sacrifice it to God, they were saying something about God's worth in doing that. Not only was it a person's food and wealth and status, it was inheritance for their children. That's the future investment. It was their security And so when the best was being put on the altar, it was like saying to God that you are worth more than all of these things, my food, my status, my wealth, my inheritance for my children. You're worth more than my security. You see what I'm saying? Is that as you offer your sacrifice, in a way you're saying this is more important. You are more important than all of those things. Now, oftentimes it was just a token. They weren't they weren't off. They weren't throwing in their two pence like the the widow with the two mites, right? They were giving a portion, a token gift of God's worth to them, just as we do. Most of us don't bring in our whole paycheck and give it in the offering. Most of us come in and we give a portion of what we receive, and that's a token that suggests God, you really have it all. I'm not, I can't give it all, and you've not commanded me to give it all, but I want this to be a token expression of your worthiness and how you are my provider. And so they gave to God in a way that showed that they had a heart for God and showed the priority that he is due. I think this is interesting, talking about animal sacrifices. Did you know there's only one mention of singing prior to the Exodus in the Bible? Did you know that? Only once. And uh, it was Laban, when he's getting on to Jacob for skipping town with his daughters, and he catches up with him and he says, you stole the gods, and uh, how come you left in such a hurry? If you had stayed, we would have thrown a party for you and sang songs. So it's not even in the context of worship. It's like a goodbye party, and they're going to sing so long, farewell, and and whatever uh, to Jacob as he leaves. But we don't see a song being sung, an expression of worship until later. There are moments when it talks about praise, but there's no way of proving that praise is in music. And I'm making a point with this. It seems like we're laboring a a relevant point, but I'm not. The point is, is that worship, it precedes, it's greater than our song, okay? And so before people were singing, or at least we know of them singing in Scripture, songs to God, they were worshiping. Okay, it's prior to that. And so that's the point that I want to make. We have that mention of, that one mention 
of singing from Adam through Egypt. And uh, when they came out of the wilderness, or when they came out of Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea. Do you remember this? And the, the sea split apart, and all the children of Israel went across on dry ground. And then they got across, and then Pharaoh started to pursue them. I'm surprised that he didn't... Aren't you surprised by Pharaoh sometimes? Like, when are you going to see, fella? Look, doop, 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 ten times, and now you're, you dare go in this miraculously, mysteriously open sea in pursuit of God's people? Man, he had the gall, didn't he? <clears throat> he gets in there, and the, the Lord lets the waves crash in and, and buries Pharaoh. And, and Miriam leads the children of Israel in a song. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he's thrown into the sea. You remember that? That's the first worship song recorded in Scripture. It's there. They responded to something that God had done. And so worship was not just about offering animal sacrifices. Worship was a condition of heart. And also it was an expression through song. So we can see that. But worship is so much more than just the songs that we sing. And if we get worship right, it affects the songs we sing. I'll come to that in a minute. And so there's a a shift that's taking place even in the Old Testament. You can see it when people start coming to offer their sacrifices and they don't do it with the right heart. Do you remember this? There's some scriptures that refer to this. And uh, God calls them on it. Like you're doing all of the rituals right, but something's missing here. Do you remember? These people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. These people do violence to my temple by coming and offering sacrifice. These people come and they offer not the best. They offer their leftovers and the things that they really don't want for themselves. The things they couldn't sell in the market, the things they don't want to eat. They bring that and offer that. Is is there not something wrong with that? And so the shift begins to take place in the Old Testament. I'm not so concerned. You'll you'll hear a phrase like this. Have I ever desired the blood of bulls and goats? It's not that God didn't ask them to do that. It's that that's not really what he was after. And let me tell you this. He's really not after a song. That's provocative, and I don't like to be provocative. But listen, what he wants is you. Okay? The song is becomes a part of the offering when it's done with the right heart. But when it's not, it doesn't even matter. Okay? So he wants our heart. He wants us. The Bible shows us that worship is more than this. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, after Paul comes to the end of describing the rich theology of the cross, he comes to chapter 12 and he says, Therefore, in view of God's mercies, offer your bodies. This is the reflexive action of really understanding what Christ has done to, done for you. And offering your bodies, what he's asking for is to offer all of ourselves to him. So what does he want in worship? Worship is not just the offering of our song. It's the offering of all of ourselves to him. In fact, I don't know if you know this or not, but God owns your body. He bought it. First Corinthians says, you're not your own, you're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. You don't get to do whatever you want with your body. It belongs to the Lord. Okay? So we offer that to him. That's part of our our offering. That's part of our worship. And he goes on to say, this is your reasonable worship. 
to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. So he sees that as a very important part of this. And then he describes a bunch of interpersonal relationships that are also part of that offering. That if you offer yourself wholly to God, then he's free to use you however he wants to use you. Okay, He's free to interact, use you, and call upon you to interact with a righteous relationship towards other people, with a loving relationship with other people. You don't just get to say, I don't like that person anymore. You've got to ask the question, does God want me to act in a loving way towards them because I belong to him. This is part of my worship. Come on, isn't that true? There's more to it, but we don't have time. Um, so offering our bodies to him is part of our, this is the reasonable worship. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Let's li- listen to this. It's got both song and uh, the broader category of worship. Let the message of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Singing and whatever you do, do it to the Lord. Worship is a big category. The appropriate response to God is always wholehearted devotion. It's always obedience. Sometimes it's singing and sometimes it's silence. Did you know that? Sometimes the appropriate response to God is silence. And that ought to hopefully will sink in to us today is that we are, there's a lot of clamor that goes on in our world. There are times when we need to put it all on pause and be silent before him. And he will speak to us in those moments, and we will find out things about ourselves. Sometimes we get uncomfortable when it's quiet. And one of the reasons may be that the Holy Spirit has a searchlight shining on us. And there are areas we need to deal with. And there are things he wants to show us about himself. But we're too busy, and there's too much, there's too much noise taking place. An appropriate response is always wholehearted devotion. And sometimes... The appropriate response is silence. Anybody ever heard of the Quakers before? Okay. Susie brought this up the other day, and uh, she actually was probably closer than anybody about guessing what was going on because she paid attention to her schedule. She said, I noticed nobody's scheduled for worship on Sunday. And so I didn't let on that she was right, but she said, are we doing a Quaker thing? Something like that. If I misrepresented you, forgive me on that. But are we doing something like that? And if you're not familiar, in early Quaker meetings, they arrange their chairs in a square. If you've ever been here for Sunday night prayer, you've seen this, where there's a square in the middle and then there's rows of successive chairs all around that square. And people came in, and the Quakers were typically anti-form, and anti-establishment, and so that led to certain things. Like they, they didn't, in the early meetings... Uh, I know of Quaker churches where this is different, and some of them are even like spirit-filled. Uh, but they had no hymns, they had no order of worship, they had no sermon, uh, they had no sacraments. They didn't believe in the Lord's Supper or baptism; that they felt like that could just be form and not reality. They had no creeds or ministers. And often in churches, when they came in, they sat silently in their pews, waiting upon the Lord. And when the Lord would speak, do something in their heart, and lead somebody to stand up and say something, then that's what they did. didn't matter who it was. If the Lord inspired you to stand up and say something, then you did. 
Now, there we have some differences with um, Quaker theology and practice, but one of the things you have to appreciate is that they were people who were willing to sit in the presence of God, and they were hungry for the presence of God. And we might disagree with some of the way they went about things, but you have to appreciate that kind of heart, that their worship was going to be inspired not based on form alone, but by the inner working of God in their heart. And so one of the things that would happen is when the presence of God would come upon people, sometimes there would be a physical reaction, like they would tremble or they would shake, and somebody derisively gave them the name Quakers. They quake. And that was weird to a lot of people in those days. And so the thing I appreciate, and it comes back to this message, is sometimes the appropriate response in worship is not just singing. Sometimes it's silence. Sometimes we need to listen for the voice of God. Okay, so the second thing I wanted to mention here, point number two, is that worship comes before our song. Worship comes before our song. I know that uh, God wants from us more than a song, but how do we get to that pure song? How do we get to the point where when we are singing worship, it's acceptable before the Lord? Do we just come in willy-nilly? Do we rush into his presence? Do we start singing and just hope that maybe God can get us in the right frame of mind and become like passive worshipers? Or is there preparation that needs to happen? In advance, I don't mean in the sense of like theological justification. Christ is taking care of that, and you can worship. But I'm talking about in a sense of psychological readiness. When we come in before the Lord, have we readied ourselves? Have we put ourselves in a position where we can we can be fully focused upon the Lord? Are we distracted? There's grace. I'm not talking about some kind of weird legalism here, like oh man, we're going to have people run around and judging to see whether you're genuinely worshiped. That's going to be between you and the Lord. But let me challenge us today with this thought that God wants us to have worship, the principle of worship in our heart prior to our singing a song. Okay, That we're offered fully to God. We're given fully to him. We've poured ourselves out to him. Our life belongs to him. All that we do is ultimately for him. And nothing that we do that is outside of his will we would want to do We wouldn't want to do anything that would be contrary to his will and desire. And then worship can begin to flow from that. There's a sense of of truth and and loving what God has done that needs to precede the songs of worship. And maybe one of the things we need to ask here is, do we love the song more than we love the Savior? You hear what I'm saying? That some people like the song, but if the song stops... So does their enthusiasm towards the things of God. Like maybe this morning you're like, why even come to church if we're not going to sing? Well, there's a lot of good reasons. The top of it is that Jesus saved us. We love him and we love his people. And if we don't sing a song, we can we can still love Jesus. You understand? We can still express ourselves with a heart of worship. Augustine uh, had this problem. Augustine is very concerned. I've been reading his confessions. He's very concerned about anything that would move into the place of top priority. And so he's constantly pitting things against one another in order to weigh out what's most important, friends and God, loves and God, passions and God, all kinds of different things. And one of the things that was happening in the churches of his day was there was a time when they didn't practice singing songs 
in their services. That sounds strange. I mean, we're doing it today, but it's rare. We don't, we don't do this. And so he talks about it in um, Book 10, um, Confession 33, if you want to know. <clears throat> he says, I waver between the danger that lies in gratifying the senses. He was concerned that people would just be worshiping because it made them feel good rather than because God's really worthy of it. I waver between the danger of that lies in gratifying the senses and the benefits, which, as I know from experience, can accrue from singing. Without committing myself to an irrevocable opinion, I'm inclined to approve of the custom of singing in church. Did you hear that, folks? Augustine approves of us singing in church. But uh, I joke in that. He says then, yet when I find that the singing itself is more moving than the truth which it conveys, I confess that this is a grievous sin. And at those times, I would prefer not to hear the singer. When we love the song more than the truth that it conveys. We love the tune more than the truth that goes with it. And so, as I said, Augustine often created these contest between one thing and another. And so he's not saying it doesn't have to be either or. It should be both and. But he's saying when it comes to this, maybe we've gotten, we've gotten things switched around. And uh, we have in our culture, we're flooded with music. And I know that in order for there to be true worship, it has to come through the heart first. God told people in the Old Testament, this is where worship comes before song. Okay, If we can back up a little bit and just substitute sacrifice for song there, you can kind of see where this is going. He told them at times to stop worshiping, stop doing this, and go back home until you can get this first thing right. Okay, Stop bringing animals to church, well, to the temple, and sacrifice them until you can get the heart thing right. Stop coming through the doors with these uh, mangy sheep and offering them in worship. Go home and don't do this anymore until you can get this right. Okay, That's harsh. Today the message isn't a rebuke. I don't feel that this is a rebuke or a correction for anybody. I feel like this is uh, helping us to be trained in our thinking so that we can worship the very best we can. My hope is that in not singing today, next week we're going to sing with greater vigor. Okay, That's my hope. Um, and I hope you'll get on. Hope also you'll get on board with that. But uh, as I said, I don't think the spirit of this is rebuke. But it's a challenge to love God for who He is and what He said and what He's done. Worship precedes music or any other form by being a matter of the heart first. And there are times when the appropriate response is silence. We're coming to our verse. We've talked about it. We've thought about it. The interesting thing about Habakkuk is that he doesn't really directly address anyone in his prophecy. It's just kind of a dialogue between him and God, and he's he's pointing out these things that people, whoever are doing them, should be careful of because God will judge those things. And so it's like general truth. He doesn't want to call any names. He doesn't want to point anybody out. He's just saying, look, everybody to whom it may concern, hear this. And he prophesies. And so when he prophesies in chapter 2, he's prophesying woes to those who disobey God. And in verse 18, he says, Of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman or 
an image that teaches lies. For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, listen, come to life or to the lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered in gold and silver. There is no breath in it. And then this, the Lord is in his temple, but all the earth should be silent before him. Maybe it catches me because I've been dwelling in this verse for some time. But here's what he's doing. He's contrasting the true God and idols. And he says of those who make idols, they have to command them to speak. This, uh, the response instead to those who worship the true God, the proper response to such a God who is enthroned above the cherubim is a, an odd silence. The word for keep silence here, I don't know if I'll pronounce this right, but it's an onomatopoeic uh, interjection with the same force that we have in English for the word hush. Okay, And the Hebrew word is something like this, hus. Can you hear the similarity? It's quiet before him. Be quiet before him. Hush before him. The Lord is in his temple. Hush before him. There's a time when the appropriate response in worship is silence before him. It's to be stilled before him, to reflect upon his nature, to be in awe of him. And if we can't worship with song the way we could, maybe we need to step back a step to worship and ask the question, are we awed by God? And if we're not, maybe the appropriate response first is silence before him. God, show me who you are. This isn't the only place. Zechariah has an example of this. And Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 7, a similar response. And we know from the Psalms, be still, which he's calling people to quit clamoring and know that I'm God. So there are lots of moments like this. We see it in Ezekiel, the prophet who was supposed to prophesy, but he's struck with silence. And, and there are some instances in Scripture where people, because they didn't believe, they were struck with silence. And they couldn't, like Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, couldn't do his duties as his, dare I say, priestly duties. He couldn't do those because he was struck with silence. And sometimes that was inflicted, and other times it was commanded. He is calling for people to be silent before him. And I know of all the verses, because in my mind I argue with myself when I'm preparing messages. What about this? Doesn't God command us to worship? He does. But do you remember Ecclesiastes? There's a time to speak and a time to be silent. Everything's beautiful and it's time. And you might argue Sunday morning is not the time to not be worshiping with song. And you're right. Next Sunday, come back. We're going to do it. Okay. But today, the, the, think, the thinking is, let's be still before him. And so the proper response to him at times is silent. The call to be silent in his presence is the response to true God instead of clamoring after idols. In this passage... <clears throat> They've been calling their idols to live, and it comes after the craftsman has carved the idol, and then he tries to speak it into existence by saying, live. And God says that the Lord is in his temple. Be silent before him. We don't create our God, right? We worship a God who is alive, and he is, and he resides, and he acts, and he calls at time for us to be still in his presence, even 
even when we sing, you realize that there are pauses in our singing. I don't know a lot about this, and so there are people here that are very technical and understand all of this. But it seems to me one of the ways that music even works is the fact that it's not one note constantly played without end. There are pauses and there are breaks, and that creates some kind of rhythm. Okay? I know there's a technical language for that, but I don't know it because I'm not very savvy in this. But but I do know that there's something about this. And in the Psalms, we have, we have the word often, Selah, right? 74 times in Psalms and Habakkuk chapter 3, the very next chapter. And there's been a lot of speculation by Hebrew scholarship about what Selah means. Most everyone agrees that it's some kind of a musical cue to shift. Okay? But there are people that think that this is a pause for reflection. So as you sing through the Psalms and you come to a place where it says, Selah, stop singing and pause for reflection and think upon how great God is and what he's done. And, and then we can be changed and we can be challenged by it. Okay. Many think that that's a cue, pause for reflection. And that's what I think is happening here. I had a revelation that was burned deeply into me like a conviction. As I said, that song and music are not the worship. They're only a means to express the heart, which means that if real worship is going to happen, it's going to be because we have a reason. If the giving of our best was right with animals, how much more was singing? And we've often been these passive worshipers dragged along, as we talked about, by the worship leader. But if worship's first, then the singing will come more naturally. And this is the best way I can relate this. When I was a kid, uh, my mom... I went with her just about everywhere. When you're a little kid, that's what you do, right? And she would take me to the mall <laughs> to go shopping shopping for blouses or whatever it is that mom shopped for. And so she took me to the mall. And I remember that um, as she's taken me to the mall, she would sometimes, when she thought of it, she would hold my hand. Um, but she gave no thought to my short legs. Okay, she was a woman possessed with getting to the sale before the other moms got there. And her little boy, her darling little boy who had short legs, was doing something between being dragged, sprinting to catch up, and walking when you could just to get a break. And so you get that picture a little bit. She had to get to J.C. Penney's. And I wasn't super excited to know what was at the end of it, but... I wasn't super excited about if history, my short history, was any experience. <clears throat> and so she would drag me along. But here's the thing. If it had been a toy aisle at Kmart, I would have been dragging her because my heart was in that. You, you understand? The, sh- the physical limitations had nothing to do with it. It had to do with an issue of motivation and desire. And if I if I wanted that thing, if I saw, if I saw... Kmart at, in those days had the best toy, toy, toy aisles. If I had that in my mind, I could, I could drag her. And why, why is that? I think it's just because there's an issue of motivation. Wednesday night I said something at the end of uh, service I'd like to clarify. And by the way, Wednesday night we did an hour of worshiping. I thought some of that could carry over to today. Um, but I said something that I would like to clarify. I said something about desiring the presence of God. 
And there might be extended times when uh, we have concentrated singing. And people, they don't always agree on what the appropriate amount of singing is. You can have some people who say, if you sing two songs, that's enough. And other people say, if you sing an hour, it's not enough. And so it's weird how that kind of thing happens. But uh, I was saying, I was thinking Wednesday night as we were praising that uh, where was where was our heart in it? I, I not that we didn't have a heart for it, but I thought I wonder if people were enjoying the presence of God right now. That was my thought. Okay, if not, why wouldn't they be? Pastor thinks about those kinds of things as well as worshiping God. I thought, if we don't enjoy this, why? Why don't we enjoy this? Why don't we enjoy worshiping God if we don't? I I didn't see any signs of people not enjoying the presence of God, so this isn't anything personal. But I, I wondered about that, and I think that it has to start with a love for the presence of God, and then worship will come, or the singing will come naturally. And so it occurs to me that the worship comes before the song, by encountering God in some way that changes us and calls for response, and certainly in salvation, but also intimate encounters with him. And this is why I think worship starts with a song. This is the final point here, and it's shorter, so everybody should rejoice. <clears throat> okay. And worship goes through our song. Okay. So if you're already a worshiper, this is one. our song is one expression of that. <clears throat> And I think that's really important that we worship through song. We're called to do it. And I think song songs have a way of causing things to stick to your soul like no one else. I've I've been at the bedside of people right before they passed where mo- for the most part their memory had gone. They couldn't remember their own children. But if you start singing a song, they can sing along. Isn't that amazing? Like it draws out of them something that is kind of stuck in a good way to their soul. When I was traveling recently, I noticed how many people had their earbuds in all the time. Anybody's noticed that about life now? This is just like a new thing in life now is we don't have social interactions. I'm in my own world. I've got my own soundtrack to my life playing all of the time. And uh, this is no comment on the kind of music or whether they might be what they might be listening to or the cultural phenomenon that's newish. A person can exclude the world and retreat into a kind of world of their own now, playing songs and having that soundtrack for their life. And, and probably we don't realize how rare this is in the history of the world. Have you considered that we follow musical cues to help us to know how we should be feeling when we watch movies? Anybody notice that? Like it tells you when you're supposed to be happy. It's that, I can't even think of what it's called, but there's a particular uh, little um, refrain that happens, and you just know that's the happy song. And then there's the ominous. And if you've got TV with the captions on, it'll say ominous music. (laughs) Anybody see that? We watch it with the captions on because we don't always catch it. And so, and then there's the sad music, and you just know what to do. And I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but if you're ever watching anything scary, it's far less scary if you turn the sound off. It is. 
Like you don't get, it doesn't pull you in in that way. And so music kind of leads us along and tells us how we should be feeling. And this is one of the beauties of music, and it's also a concern too. I discovered this when, like I said, when something was a little scary and you just turn that off. And we can be passively moved by music instead of committing to purpose. Have you considered that when Jesus did most of his miracles, I would say all, but I can't say that for certain, most of his miracles, he didn't have music in the background. I don't know if you've ever thought, I've never thought of that before. I mean, it should be obvious to us, but we just expect it to be like a movie. He's getting ready to do the miracle, and this loud, blustering music is going to play and tell us, be excited about this. There wasn't any. And he still did the miracle. And now in sometimes healing crusades, they've got to have the music be played a certain way so that the person can get healed. There's, a, there's this great book called Healing Through the Centuries, and it talks about different healing movements through the centuries. And there was this house, and I think it was in Germany, where people would go and they'd sit quietly around a table, and the guy that led the ministry would just pray for them. Back in the 1800s, I think his name was Blumholt or something like that. And... Um, People would get healed. There was no exciting music. There was no shouting. There was no pushing people down. There was no anointing with oil. And not that anointing with oil is bad. They would just sit quietly in a kitchen around a table and pray a quiet prayer, and people would get healed. And I'm just telling you that sometimes we think that all these things have to be in place for God to move a particular way, and we get passively drawn along. By these, I'm not scorning music. I'm just saying that our cues for worshiping need to precede the song. You understand that the reason we sing such wonderful worship songs is because God did something first, something worth writing about, something uh, making worth making a song about. The uh, parting of the Red Sea came first, and then the song came after. So, what I'm asking uh, us to do today is to pause in that moment in between event and song, and think about why we worship. Daniel Borston wrote a book back in the 60s called The Image, and it's worth reading because it talks about how things have begun to shift around image culture. We've gone away from a literary culture, and we're now in an image culture. And so he talks a little bit about some of the side effects of that, and he said one of the things that happened in this shift is the invention of Muzak. Anybody know what Muzak is? That's the stuff that they play when you're on the elevator and in doctor's waiting rooms, Muzak. And so there was a guy who came out with Muzak, and they started to pipe it in through the telephone lines into different places, and they had different phases through the day where they would play different things to cue people in on the kind of mood they should have. I didn't. Did you know you were being manipulated all this time by music? And it's happening. They even had breaks scheduled in in the afternoons in order to tell us, okay, calm down a little bit, or wake up a little bit, and they would play livelier music after lunch so people wouldn't fall asleep at their desks and things like that. And so all of this was beginning to happen, and he said one of the things that took place was people started to have music in the background of their lives, and it moved in many ways out of the foreground. Okay, So think about this, is that when people are listening to their earbuds as they're traveling, do you think they're actively listening to music or passively listening? I think it's more passive, and a lot of times more passively listening, because we've got to focus on a hundred different things these days, 
And so he says that gone are the days when people used to sit in some kind of living room and watch somebody play the piano and listen to the music. And it made me a little sad. I don't necessarily want to go back to these days, but maybe some of you remember the days when an album dropped and you went to a brick-and-mortar store and bought it and you came home and you listened to it with your friends. Those days are gone. And it's sad. Because now we just turn on Spotify, which I love. And this is not a plug. I don't get any money from Spotify for this. But you can pick the song that you want to listen to and go to town. You can go shopping with your own tracks. And the, You know, I mean, who wouldn't like to pick out avocados listening to the Hallelujah Chorus? It just makes everything more grand. Or if you get on the candy aisle, Sugar Sugar is playing in the background. <clears throat> you know what I mean? But it's moved it out of the foreground into the background and I think one side effect is that it's caused some people to be passive, and when they hear music, they don't participate actively as much. It's something there for their entertainment. I've seen this in youth conferences where there's a band up there playing, and everybody's just not worshiping. They're standing there watching somebody perform, it looks like, rather than worshiping the Lord. So we worship, but it has to be active through our song. See, the bigger concern for me is that we've had we've become passive listeners, even passive worshipers. But here's another concern with so much in the background, so many texts blowing up on our phones and dogs barking in our neighborhood. That's my neighborhood anyway. And calls and, and TV noise. Where's the silence? How can we even hear from God? It's not that I think music's unimportant, but maybe we need a Selah Sunday or a Selah moment in our day where we pause from all of that noise and listen for God to look in awe for what he's done, to think about him, to reflect upon who he is. And we don't necessarily need music in the background all the time. Sometimes we need to hear our thoughts and be without distraction. I don't think music is unimportant. I think it's very important. But I think something precedes it, something which makes music glorify God. Worship must be heart first. And if God has your heart, almost all things can be worshiped. You know that? Almost all things. I mean, you can't go beat people up. And I did that for you, Lord. Wonderful. Not that, but any, almost anything like your job and you're being a good wife and you're uh, being a good parent and being a good employee and good citizen. I'm kind of on a track here. Let me get off that and just say um, you're reading your Bible, your education. Anything that's done to the glory of God is worship. Okay, But if your heart is not God's first, nothing is worship. Do you hear me? Nothing is worship if we don't, if he doesn't have our heart. And so what is it? Is it silence or is it is it songs? Spurgeon was asked which was more important, prayer or Bible reading? Which is more important, prayer or Bible reading? And he asked a question in response, which is more important, breathing in or breathing out? See, I think even with our worship, which is more important, silence or song? I think silence is like breathing in. We're stopping in the presence of God and we're taking him in. And our song is the breathing out. And we need both of those things. Christian without a song 
ultimately, and it comes going back to the heart of worship coming through us. I have to give Matt Redman um, royalties every time I mention heart of worship. I can't help mention it without thinking of him. But a Christian without a song is like a bird without wings, a birthday without cake, a fourth without fireworks. All of those things have nothing in comparison with a Christian without a song. God wants us to sing a song. Do you remember, in, I think it's Psalm 137. We read 136 today in our responsive reading. But it says there, um, we hung our harps on the willows. Our tormentors asked for us a song of Zion. Do you remember that? And they said, how can we sing the songs of Zion in a foreign land? And I think if I understand that psalm right, I think they had a theological problem, okay? It wasn't just a psychological problem. Like their problem wasn't just that they were sad. You can be sad and still worship. You can be sad and still sing songs. I think it's a theological problem, not understanding that wherever we are in the plan of God, God is with us. And even if he's taking us through a moment of discipline, he will bring us through. and He will establish us. Psalm 19, verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. As worshipers, I would call upon you that where your heart is with God, don't become passive in worship. Be active worshipers. That you respond to him in a way that speaks up and acts in a way that honors him. In conclusion here, if you're troubled today by what we've done here, maybe this will help. One is I believe that I was following the voice of God and approaching service this way today. Number two is that what we're doing today is in the interest of worship and not against it. You understand that? that we, haven't, we haven't sung any songs, but it's in the interest of worship. Number three is we haven't ever done this before, and we don't plan on doing it again. <laughs> Number number five, uh, number four. That was number th- that was number three. Number four is I don't like this any more than you do because I love singing songs. And number five is we're going to be getting out of church earlier than normal, but don't expect that every week. All right. I think before the song, we come and we offer ourselves to God. It'll be quiet, and it'll seem strange. But we need to do that first, and then we sing. And let me give you some practical things on this. Take a little time every day and and unplug yourself from the noise. Okay. And then respond to God in singing. What happened to, remember the old days they used to call it your quiet time? That's sometimes like a foregone thing now. We we can play our worship music, and we can, and that's fine. But I'm saying, what if we took a little bit of that time and we said, No. I'm turning off all the noise. There's enough commotion going on in the world. I'm turning off all the noise. Okay. Here's another thing that maybe we could do in response to this is that, um, well, now it just flew the coop. So it's going to be even shorter than I thought. But I think taking a little time every day before the Lord and saying this is my quiet time with you, that's going to, That's going to do a lot for us. And then respond in worship. Amen. Stand with me if you would.
It's going to be quiet in here for the next few minutes, but could we take about five minutes and find a place where we can be alone with the Lord and ask him, God, help me to be a worshiper. Okay. So that's the prayer. Help me to be a worshiper. What may happen is God may show you if there's something that stands in the way of that. Like it's hard to be a true worshiper if you've got competing loyalties. Okay. Maybe he's going to grant you a vision of some kind or some realization of something that he's done that helps you to appreciate what he's done even more. But I would like to give us opportunity today before we leave, and we're going to do it without music, for us to have a few quiet moments with the Lord. Okay? So that begins now, five, five minutes at least. And let's take that and go from there with it.
Psalm 40 says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He heard my cry. He inclined his ear towards me, I think is the way it describes it in Scripture. He brought me up out of the miry clay. He put my feet on a rock. He put a song in my heart, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will hear, they'll see, and they'll fear, and they'll put their trust in the Lord. Lord, we want you to do something in our hearts that would transform us into great, greater worshipers, that we do so more and more, that it could be more pure, that it could be more motivated and more inspired, not because you're demanding of us some kind of performance. What you really want is to have our heart, and that's what the message is about today. So I pray, Lord, you help us to be fully surrendered. If there's any idol that we need to throw down or lay down, if there's any priorities that need to be shifted, Lord, pray, God, that you would work that work in us today, that you might love you most, love you supremely, that our hearts might run after you. Lord, even as David said, my heart follows hard after you. We want to be that way. We want our song to be a response to the greatness of who you are. We want worship to start with your majesty and then bring our feelings into alignment with that. So we pray for your help in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you feel deprived today, I wanted to offer a solution. If you have Spotify, I don't know if you know this, I don't, and I'm not receiving any money, but did you know that there is a feature where you can view the lyrics? And so you can touch a button and view the lyrics, and it'll follow along with the song. And so on the way home, not on the way home, if you're driving, no. But when you get home, maybe you can. there is an app you can even put on the screen or you can cast it to the screen. And you can put a worship song on there, and you could sing along with all the lyrics visible to you. And I would encourage you to do that. That's a good response to this message today is go home worshiping the Lord. We've thought about it. Hey, don't forget 242 tonight. Be a part of that. It's going to have something to do with what we've talked about today. So God bless you. Stand with me, and let's have a word of final prayer. <clears throat> Jesus, thank you, Lord that all that you've done in the cross calls for the response of worship and praise. Father, we thank you that all you've done in arranging for the plan of salvation to take place and your goodness and love and kindness to us calls for us to worship and praise. And Spirit, we thank you that dwelling within us, that you provide for us everything that we need. You appropriate the life of Christ in us and everything that's necessary for life and godliness. We thank you for that, Lord. For that reason, Lord, we just recognize that you are worthy. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit of our praise today. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.